0: Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. I am Chris Waddell. Excited today to be joined by Lacey Henderson, who is the American record holder in the long jump. She is the world record in the pole vault. We're going to have to get to the pole vault story at some point because you started in the pole vault, which sounds like the scariest place to start. But anyway, uh, we will get to that. She was a division one cheerleader. She plays the ukulele. She hosts a podcast. I know we've got to talk about the ukulele hosts a podcast that is called pick last in gym class. She also as she said, is an athlete purgatory right now. She is assuming that she is number 27 of 26 athletes who are going to Tokyo for the Paralympics. So we have our fingers crossed that as she continues to train, she will get to perform and show people all of that training that she put into it. Lacey, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me
0: this has been an absolutely crazy year hasn't it i mean just with with covid with postponing the paralympics with then going to we were talking before you came on or before before we came on here about going to the trials and having your event the long jump be the first event have it be a miserable uh runway and because you guys are measuring your steps and everything is 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 scientific and it's not working out. So where are you in a mental state right now? How have you, how have you come through in like the rebirthing process of emerging from COVID? Where are you?
1: Um, I feel like today's like such a, been a weird day just for everybody in general. I don't know, but I'm, you know what? I've been okay. I was really lucky. Like when COVID hit that it gave me a year to kind of like regroup I was living and training in Texas and before that in Arizona and like I needed a new prosthetic when I got in Texas it was no good and I had like a two years of just decline when I was by myself training by myself in Austin and so I moved back to Denver got a new prosthetic and I'm working with my dad now he is with me at the track and my my normal coach is still writing my programming but um we actually had a really good year we were able to make up and like supersede um a lot of the decline that I had and I've had PRs this year which is like nice especially for you know a lady in her 30s and jumps have been going really well jumps and performance just in general been going well um I yeah so right now I got my official team alternate email and it is just a weird place to be especially after Rio because I also ended up getting like a last minute slot because of Rio so there's a part of me that like has unbridled optimism because you know there's always a chance like I've I've been I've lived it there's always a chance to go but it's still you know there's no guarantee and I don't know I, I have to remind myself like COVID itself taught us all about like the just living through uncertainty um it is highly stressful I feel like brains aren't meant to like withstand this much uncertainty and just like stress for a long period of time but I like to keep myself busy. I feel like it it uh, it, it keeps me from getting like too succumb to the stress. So like I've been reorganizing my house, my garage, my car. Like everything's very organized in my house right now. And yeah, you know, you just take everything day by day, just just like how we did last year.
0: Can we step back? Because I mean, some of this is we learn things from the experiences that we've had, right? And so so as a nine year old, you had you had pain in your knee mm-hmm. but what's what's I mean and and you can talk us through that whole story if you'd like but but what's interesting to me is you i saw you mention at one point or heard you mention that after you finished chemo you were ridiculously confident just just ridiculously self-confident so coming out of the hardest thing that you could possibly do and possibly encounter. And as a nine-year-old, I mean, what kind of skills do you have? Though in some ways it might be that you're just sort of a, you know, malleable kind of entity as a nine-year-old too, but you don't necessarily have sort of the intellectual skills that you have. Can you talk us through, like, how did, how did that work as a kid and how could you come out feeling like you were, you were so confident?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, this is going to be kind of sick, but like, if you're going to have cancer and lose your leg, I feel like doing it at it as a kid is a great time to do it. Like you don't have, you don't have any like weird emotional baggage that you just accumulate as you get older. So when I was sick, sickness was like very black and white. A lot of things when you're a kid is just very black and white. And so you're like, oh, well, I'm sick now, but I guess I'm going to get better. And like my parents had talked about dying and all that stuff, but you know, there's so much of us that like go through our daily lives and you see tragedies and you hear about so-and-so having a tragedy and like, you're still always like, wow, like not me though. Like you're like, that'll never happen to me though. So then when something does happen to you, I think before you have enough life experiences for it to really kind of like hammer home, for me, it was like, oh, well people die from this, but like not me, like I'm not gonna do it. So it just was never really, a reality to me um at nine just because I think like my little nine-year-old brain just was very just simple and malleable just like you said but um I got really really sick I was put on experimental chemotherapy um it didn't work and so we ended up getting our my leg amputated our our collective leg in my family <laughs> well, well hold
0: on hold on a second because back up a little bit on that because it you said it didn't work but it was also it was a fact it was long-term effects on your kidneys and your, and your liver as well? I mean, that's when you basically decided to stop. Were you involved in the decision to amputate your leg? How did that conversation work?
1: For sure. Um, So I guess you're right. I guess the chemo worked a little bit, but not in the way that we intended. (laughs) Uh, I had like less than 1% tumor kill. So we had tried treatment too, because we really wanted to avoid amputation. And then yeah, I just had it was not working as far as my tumor was concerned, but I started showing signs of permanent kidney and liver damage, and I was getting super sick. Um, I was just like living in ICU. And so it, the time just came to like have the meeting, and my parents, they were really transparent, like my, and my doctors. So I was really, really lucky to have an amazing team of doctors at Denver Children's Hospital and even then, like, they had asked me, like, how much do you want to know? Like, when, when we're going through all this chemo stuff, like, what if it's scary? And I was like, well, it's, it's my body, I, I'd like to know, I think I should know. So then when we started talking about my amputation, my parents, they ultimately left, left it up to me. And um, again, it's like, I think that that was probably like, I'm sure it was horrifyingly scary for my parents. But I think it was like, kind of smart too because again it's like I didn't have this weird emotional attachment like all I knew at that time was like I'm sick now I'm very sick and this chemo is making me worse and this amputation is now my only option to get out of cancer land so it was very straightforward and simple to me like it wasn't really this like attachment that I had to it I mean it was scary and like I didn't I didn't know anybody with a disability I didn't know other amputees at the time but um again my doctors were just so amazing they were like listen we could try to save it but it's probably not going to work and I think I think that's like the difference that than a lot of other people's experiences I think so many people have surgeons that are always trying to save these legs and so you end up being in the hospital forever and my doctors were like if you want to play sports you want to be active the best way and the quickest way to do this and the healthiest way to do this would be amputation and then of course they're like well you know if you if you break a leg now you just get a new one like it's, it's a lot more simple of a fix now so um it was just really simple for me and i think like when i finally was like back on two feet i i just i felt confident because i knew i was healthy again like that i could go be a kid again and i think knowing that i tackled something so big very early in my life like it just it made me feel very strong and like very i've always been a very opinionated kind of loud person and it just kind of magnified it So that when I was growing up and like when I had to deal with kids and bullying and stuff, like it just didn't affect me because I still have this perspective of being like, I tackle something very, very big. And these like, it's weird. It's almost like post COVID. It's like how a lot of us feel post COVID. Like you return back to normal life, but we're all still kind of different. Like it's still, there's still a part of like that residual that you're hanging on to. And like, even now, like I still kind of feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm vaxxed and paid my taxes, but I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable wearing a mask like when without going, like without wearing a mask inside like the grocery store or something, no way. But um, there was a part of me that just kind of held that residual, just knowing like what I'd been through and where I came from and like knowing that the everyday normal life was just so separate and just so much more simple and easier than what I'd been through that I think it, it really projected me as a kid and it helped form me.
0: It, it's interesting because I, I think, I mean, I broke my back and and I remember lying in the hospital one night. It was sort of the first night that I was alone and feeling like, well, if this is as bad as it can get, like I have no reason to be afraid.
1: Yeah, you're like,
0: like not I made that it through.
1: Bad, yeah. not that bad.
0: <laughs> but the funny thing is, that also like it, it, it's that marker, right? I mean, it's like a landmark where you have it and you go, okay, I know, I know that. But then in our everyday lives, it's easy. Sometimes to to stray from that marker and go, oh, well, this is so bad. This is so difficult. I'm scared of this or I'm intimidated by that. But how about for you coming out of COVID? Were you, were you still that super strong nine-year-old who was like, nope, this is it, this is my life. I am ridiculously, what is it? What did you you said? Overly inflated self-confidence, I believe is what you said. <laughs>
1: I think, I think I've had enough life experiences now where I'm, you know, I've had, I've been knocked back down to earth a little bit more than when I was younger. Um, I don't know. I think just like extreme circumstances, like illness, like injury and stuff like that. I think it helps feel you up to a point. And then there's still a lot of like residual, like I went, I, I ended up going to therapy and like doing a lot of PTSD treatment that stemmed from cancer just because like, I was so busy trying to survive it and um it helps as like a tool i think in the beginning but in the long term like this is now over 20 years ago so there's very few things in most people's lives that are relevant to them that happened to them 20 years ago but it, i mean like for me like it still is and it's it's kind of my whole life right now so it has like a really weird identity and like a weird place in my life and so i think post-covid like the one thing I've learned is like I'm very good if I just keep moving forward like I've learned a lot to just like keep moving forward and not hold on um but there still needs to be like a grieving process and like a prop just a process in general and I think that we're all kind of like in that weird phase where we want to move forward but it was just again like it's it seemed I feel like we came out of COVID very quickly like once the vaccines came out all of a sudden it's like boom no masks anywhere and it's like it's been kind of an abrupt change, at least where I live in Denver. And um, I don't know, I I know that like one of the main things that I learned for me that works the best is like, just continue to keep moving forward. And like, you'll tackle the big stones as they come. Um, But I am definitely a different version of myself than when I was nine years old. And I mean, she was precious, and she was lovely. And like, she needed that confidence. And right now, like, I'm just trying to have like a quiet evening (laughs) and and get a good night's sleep. (laughs)
0: You, you had that confidence, but then you had the realization that has led to your podcast as well. Right? Yeah. How did, how did that work? And how did, how did your nine year old or 10 year old at that point self handle sort of being the last kid picked in gym class?
1: Yeah. So that actually, it was so funny. I wish I had picked that name, by the way, like I did, one of my producers picked that name and it was perfect. So we had to go with it. But, um, the story itself was actually right when I was off of chemo. So I grew up and I'm very, I come from an athletic family. My dad went to Olympic trials for track for pole vault. It's in the family.
0: That's the pole vault thing. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: so that, That's part of the pole vault, pole vault route. Not many people have just access to pole vault poles and pits like I do. Um, But I mean, I just grew up athletic. We were always doing sports and like that was even how we found the tumor. But um, yeah, I came back from being on chemo and, you know, my hair was still growing back. I had a prosthetic at this time and I was usually like top three pick for like recess and sports stuff every time. Very confident. I was faster than the boys and we got into like this big like recess basketball phase that we went through and I like we all lined up and like I wasn't a team captain which kind of hurt my feelings but I was like all right be realistic Lacey and they start picking names and start picking kids and I was not the top three pick and I'm like all right well you know okay I got this leg so you know maybe they're a little unsure so that's okay we'll be realistic and then like it's like the smell of kids start getting picked like the ones that are always last start getting picked before me and I'm like all right what is happening here <laughs> and and then they start yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm like, wait a second. But then they just started playing They I wasn't even picked at all. Like they just didn't even think that I wanted that I thought I could do it or that I wanted to participate with them because you know, now I'm different. And that was like a probably a very big moment in my life where I realized, even though I knew that I wasn't any different, that I was the same kid that I had always been, other people were going to look at me different now. And so that was great fuel at the time to be like I will prove them wrong like I will let them know that I can do anything that I want to do that I can if I want to play a sport if I want to do anything like I'm going to figure it out and I did for a really long time and I played traditional sports I was competitive um and it just gave me a fuel because it made me realize that all of those things that I had thought about disability before I joined the world was the same thing that other people thought about disability too and so I realized that for, even though I knew I was the same, everybody thought I was different now. And um, it was really like my young, my young self's journey to just prove them all wrong.
0: But you but you battled with it as well, right? I mean, you talk about like Lacey the body versus Lacey the the person, which might well be part of being a Gemini, I'd imagine, as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of You
0: are you are there. your twins, right? Your
1: <laughs> There's twins. A lot of duality, yeah
0: you're mortal versus you're immortal and all of that stuff uh and then you know possibly up in the stars but but how why so so with that how did you how did you reconcile it because it was it a battle that you had to fight with other people or was it a battle that you had to fight with yourself or was it a battle that you had to fight with both groups
1: um I think the battle was more with myself. I think it's with both groups. I think it was with myself and society and the things that I agreed with that society teaches us. And so for a really long time, you know, it was me proving to people that I wasn't disabled, that, you know, my joke when I was young for a long time was like, oh, I'm not disabled, I just have one leg. And um, and like that worked, you know, I played sports and all that stuff, but I think so much of me wanted to avoid The realization that, like, I am disabled, that, like, the cancer did change me. And, like, that doesn't mean that it's bad or that I'm worse or that I'm weak or any of that. But I think it took me a really long time to kind of like deprogram myself for the way that society portrays disability and that society portrays just chronic illness and illness in general. And um, I avoided it. I mean, I always acted like, you know, I was, always, I never like, didn't want to talk about my leg and I didn't really care about not showing it, but like, I would not ever feel comfortable taking it off in front of somebody. I would never use my crutches in front of like a lay person outside of my fit. No way. And, um, there was like just really small things that are very intimate that like people with disabilities have that like really you, that you can't hide your disability that you can't use that has been designed for you to like, reintegrate into the normal world. um, Those were things that I did not feel comfortable with that I was not coming to terms with. And um, I think I avoided that for a really long time. And I think I just wanted to always beat it. Like I never wanted to like make space for it and live next to it. Um, I don't know, again, like the dualities, you know, it's like I never I didn't want to be the disabled kid. I didn't want to do disabled sports. I didn't want to be a part of that. I didn't want to be something that made me different from everybody else. And um, it was it was almost like I was doing myself an, like an injustice, a disservice, I guess, um, by avoiding it because one, I would have loved to have done track a little longer in high school, I'd be much stronger as an athlete now. And two, like, it's a huge part of who I am. And um, I just avoided it for a really long time. And there was definitely like a piece of me that needed healing, that like needed to go through the grieving process and be like, all right, the leg is gone. I am now disabled. That doesn't mean anything good, bad or different It's just, it's just what it is now. And, um, and still offer myself hope along with that change that happened with my life. I think we see so often like, you know, we call it like the inspiration porn. And it's like so many stories portrayed about this happened. And I'm a bad example. Cause of course I ended up doing sports, but it's like this person acquired a disability and then they were this great athlete and all this stuff. And it's like, there doesn't, you can just be you. And that can be, that can be the good thing.
0: Well, it's the, it's it's, it's so much. I mean, we feel like we talk about this all the time, like you overcame it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, so, so now it's not a problem anymore. And you're like, no, I still only have one leg. Nope, that,
1: still comes off every night. <laughs> yes, still comes off
0: every night. It, it hasn't changed at all. But it's, I mean, I feel like for me, it, it's still, you know, and, and sometimes is that battle, right? Where it's like, you're you're battling for recognition for yourself. You're battling to see yourself the way that you actually see yourself as opposed to seeing yourself through the filter of the way that society teaches us, you should see yourself. Yeah. But then also battling, you know, how you might see other people through that same filter, through that same societal filter, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of happening on so many different levels. Is this why? And 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 in some ways, like looking at your looking at your podcast, part of it is is we're we're all an outsider in some ways. I mean, as much as we're insiders, we're outsiders. How, how in your podcast are you addressing kind of those inherent conflicts with, I want to be seen for who I am. Thus, I have to see other people for how they want to be seen. How, How does, how, how do you reconcile that?
1: I think like the podcast has been so fun and like the heart of it is just like the stories of struggles before success. And Everybody faces that. And I think everybody also always feels like they're on the outside looking in. And the weird thing, again, is it's like we look at ourselves as these like dynamic, multidimensional people, but then we want everybody else just to be like simple. Like we want everybody else just to be one thing. And I think like that's what we battle, like for people with disabilities is it's like, you know that you're not just the disabled person. You do, you play the ukulele, like you do this, you're a student, you do that, you're an athlete. Um, and so like, you know, like, you're like, I'm many multiple things, but then we, and like, I'm guilty of it too. I think we all, it's just, we oversimplify everything else around us and maybe that's just your brain doing what it's supposed to do. But, um, the cool thing about the podcast has just been, we've been able to like open up these conversations and it was really like my intention to have a mixture of disabled talent and non-disabled talent, because there are so many threads that like we all weave together that just have parallels in everybody's stories. And that was kind of something that was important to me to bring up because I think there is a disconnect. And sometimes I catch myself with just like wanting to like stay back now in my little disabled world because like it's more comfortable and you know, I prefer us, we're better. <laughs> we're better overall, we're just better people, no offense. But also there's plenty of not better people. Um, that we just, the experiences and, and the, just the way that we like look and handle life is just so different, but at the same time, like we can help each other. And I think people in the mainstream that have like more elevated voices that they come down and kind of understand the experience that the disabled people have, that there's a lot of parallels just in life in general. Like everybody faces adversity and like just the level or the flavor of adversity is the only thing that's really different.
0: Are you, are you better now? for having lost your leg. I mean this is one of those hypotheticals, right?
1: Um yeah, I would say I was. <laughs> I would say I'm definitely a better person. I think I think if I hadn't have gone through what I went through, like I would have been a very surface level person. I think I was that in college, but I think just when you're at that age too, you just all you want to do is have fun and that's I had a great time. But uh but I think that it forced me to really dig deep inside myself and and I think sport did that more than anything I think sport was like the mirror that I needed to go back and see the way that cancer had changed me but at the same time see like the way that it made me stronger and see the way that it made me more resilient and find new ways to be able to handle new battles I mean cancer basically gave me one tool which would be a hammer but there's going to be different different things that come up in life. And if you're always constantly hammering away when you need a screwdriver, that's not gonna help. And that was something that between sports and my sports psychologist, like it really taught me to look back on the things that I had adapted to, that I had overcome and also be able to look forward and be like, all right, well, there are new things that are gonna come. COVID, a pandemic, who knew? How lucky are we? Once in a lifetime, guys. We should all the get an alternate
0: <laughs> as well. Is there a responsibility? I mean, you went through, you went through what most people would consider a tragic event when you were nine years old. Like, how can you possibly handle this as a nine-year-old? But is there, is there a responsibility both in terms of the cancer, in terms of what you've learned along the way, what you've had to learn reflecting on who you are as a person? Is there a responsibility to, to share that, to share what you've learned
1: Um, I think that I have assumed a responsibility. I think the quick answer to that is no. I think everybody can decide what their experience is and they can decide how much they want to share that. And I do think though, for a long time, society taught us that like, as people that go through things, illness, just disability in general, that for some reason, if you are outgoing and you're not sad every day about your circumstance, that for some reason you have to be the mascot of disability, that you have to be, you know, the spokesperson of cancer experiences. And that's a heavy burden. And it's not necessarily something that I think anybody is obligated to do. And I think I put that on for a really long time. I think that was me trying to overcome it again. But I also think like now the older that I am, like, I don't, not everybody deserves my story. Like, you know, I don't owe my story to every single passing stranger that asks what happened to my leg or mostly it's usually like vet and you're like, nope, I'm not a hero. <laughs> just, just a sad cancer story. Um, it's not the energy I have to, I'm the older I've gotten, I'm way more picky with how I spend my energy, especially if it's with somebody who's not, you can just tell their intent is to not understand that they've already made their assumption and you can just be like, I'll be fine. <laughs> you
0: for concern it's interesting because because i wasn't actually thinking about it in terms of in terms of representing cancer as much as as i was looking at like the human experience i mean our our motto with with this podcast and with our school presentation is it's not what happens to you it's what you do with what happens to you which is intentionally universal that yep you me everybody else you know we we all have our things and sometimes yeah. the the smaller things get a get a much bigger space in our mind than than they should but we can learn from other people but it's also you you've said that that some of your experience is is what makes you unique as well how do you I, is it okay to be unique every day or is that is that a burden sometimes as well
1: um no i mean it's for sure it's okay to be unique every day and i think like the experiences we have definitely shape us. Like they make us who we are, very simple. Um, But it's not necessarily like something that we dig deep and dive into every single day. You know, I think again, it's like, you're just constantly, we're constantly evolving and we're constantly moving forward but it doesn't change where we came from. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, I think there's a lot of things that make me unique outside of like my cancer experience and my leg experience, but that's also because like, I've done track and field as a professional, at a professional level for like 10 years now. And it's just like the most masochistic thing. Like I feel like that I do sometimes. Um, but it's an accumulation, you know? And again, it's, it kind of goes back to the idea that we are all, yeah, we're an accumulation of our experiences and that makes us mu- dynamic and multi-dimensional. And we need to realize that everybody has that too. And that there's space for everybody's like weird quirks weird experiences and whatever their experiences kind of forced them or made them into and that there's just like it's okay it's okay to have to have and be all of those things I mean I think especially you know being an athlete with a disability like you're basically we're just like living breathing paradoxes basically and like but that's that's most people there's a lot of people that just have these contradictory things about them but we exist and you know I think we're all better for it.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it's okay to be different and it's okay in our own minds. Cause I mean, so much of, so much of society, so much of school, it seems like, you know, is like get in line and, and behave yourself kind of thing. And, and some of that's, that's a lot of what we've been taught is yeah. like, don't, don't make any waves. And it's like, yeah, but the people who are different are the people who, who affect society, who yeah. affect our lives, who, who are geniuses in some ways, but it also, it takes some courage yeah to be willing to be different because it's not always a guarantee that it'll be received well do you have and and i'm going out on a limb here so i'm not i'm not positive that this is true or not so you're gonna have to so i've noticed that you have some tattoos
1: i do have some tattoos
0: (laughs) what is the significance of your tattoos
1: um I have three tattoos. So I guess, so the first one I got was when I was 25 and it's a map of the world. It's on my back. It was, I just went big for the first one. And my, it's a
0: big map of the world too. Yeah, yes. it's pretty
1: big. My mom was a, is, is a retired flight attendant. And like, I had a really cool study abroad experience in college and I had international friends. I used to go do summer school programs at Exeter and Harvard. So I was always around international people. So travel was like Very important to me. And then track and field, you know, I just, I really, that really took off once I started doing track, honestly, it was all the travel. Um, And that was another experience that shaped me, being able to experience other cultures, learn other languages. And then uh, my best friend, so my best friend's Mexican and her grandma used to always say, I have have another tattoo on my wrist, La Lengua Castiga, which is, um, the tongue punishes you is like what it translates to your tongue punishes you. But it kind of is like a never say never, thing and this was a this I've had a couple of impulsive ones so this was impulsive and my friend before I got it too I was like should I get this? this is stupid and she was like in 59 years do you think that you'll still like it and I'm like I think in 59 years I'm gonna still need the reminder so I think we say things all the time like in passing that are sarcastic and we don't mean them. And it's like, you really do need to be careful with what you say. And just like always like watch out because I think that we are creators. We're creators with our words and we're creators with our intentions. And then I have like, I have a Saturn on my arm. This was another impulsive one. When I moved to Austin, it was like very woo-woo hippie kind of place, uh, which I'm all about. And like, it was totally the perfect time for me. And I was 27 when I got there, somebody was like, oh, you're here in your Saturn return. And I was like, what's a Saturn return? And it's like a very astrological thing basically like when you're born Saturn's in a certain position in space and like that's your Saturn sign or whatever and I, and it was in it takes 27 28 years for it to do a full lap around the solar system so I was in my Saturn return and that was like a period of growth and mostly realizations and mostly realizations on what was not working as far as my behavior and just who I was and like what needed to change so I got a little Saturn term. Plus, it was, its my favorite planet. It has accessories, which I like that about that planet. Very sassy.
0: This is the most astrologically oriented podcast that I've ever done. <laughs>
1: yeah, we've covered. We've covered. We got Gemini. We're, we've we got a Birth chart if I mean, you want. Yeah. What's that? Like, we can go over my birth chart if you guys want. <laughs>
0: you, yeah, I, I don't think that I'm actually qualified. This is this is as much depth in this area as I can explore. What is, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about the, the Spanish one, you know, about about your voice. And, and, and in a lot of ways, as you were saying that, it, it sounded like that the voice in our head too, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it yeah. might be what we say to other people, but it's probably more likely what we're saying to ourselves. And yeah. and we're really good. I mean, I know I'm good at, you know, you know why'd you do that dumbass? You know, it's like, yep. I wouldn't necessarily say that to anybody else, but I think nothing of saying that to myself. And what's the story that you tell yourself? Because, I mean, obviously, like going through COVID, going through now being being an alternate for the games where you're a professional athlete and this is the thing that you've been leading toward, going through these struggles, what's the story that you tell yourself about why you're doing it, why you keep going? Um,
1: I think I'm still figuring out that story right now. I mean so much of the story of Rio of being like, you know, picked last in Rio was, um, was just like, I had sold so much of myself to the craft of track and field. Like I, that was everything I was, I just wanted to be the athlete. Like that had to be my main focus and you'll have to excuse my dogs. um okay And uh, I just, I let other things kind of fall away because that was the most important thing in my life. And I learned from Rio that like, we, just like we said, we're an accumulation of things. Like we can be, a good partner, a good daughter, a good brother, a good sister, a good friend, and still be a good athlete. Like you don't have to just be one thing. Um, and that was just young me. And that's, I think I'm dealing with Tokyo slightly better. I remember again, La Lengo Castiga, like before it, the team was called, you know, there's a handful of us that are all good friends. And we're like, well, if, you know, if it doesn't happen, at least we have other stuff going for us. And now I'm just like, oh, why did I say that? Like, <laughs> I could have said something else. Um, but it's true and i think uh oh my gosh i totally got a brain until i totally got like my brain to stop thinking for well a second. that's okay
0: the uh but that's the challenge as an athlete isn't it i mean it's almost like because you're celebrated as an athlete for for being able to block out everything else right that that yeah. it's just it's just the job in front of you just do your job it doesn't matter what else is going on in your life and and in a lot of ways that's the successful athlete right you can you can block out the noise you can block out the nerves and and i know that i went through that process where you know it was kind of like pick my head up and go oh wow like i've sort of missed everything else in life yeah you know i've been successful quote unquote successful here but missed so much of the other stuff did you approach tokyo even before even before COVID, did were you approaching Tokyo differently with a more open mind in terms of in terms of how you wanted to see yourself as a person? Because there was there was there was Lacey the body and Lacey the person. And and how were you how are you, you know, looking at that differently?
1: Yeah. Well, so Rio, because I like decided to have a meltdown after <laughs> being called and go on like an eat, pray, love journey and not train and then get called. Um, Rio I was just really grateful like I had no pressure because I knew that I was not bringing my best (laughs) and I was just there to have the experience and there to enjoy it and so I think that was almost like a gift to have because I was able to experience the games and just be very present um but then it kind of ignited in me and like I really I had some breakthroughs in 2017 which is ironic because I was not selected to the 2017 world championships um And that was a doozy too, but it was like, I've had these years now and like 2021 has been one too, where it's like, I keep having breakthroughs and I'm a better athlete than I've ever been. Um, But you know, the sport gods are not in my side. And that's the hard thing with para sport is like, it's not objective, like in like the selection criteria actually this one is the selection criteria is objective to a fault now where it's like you know they're like I can do very very well in Tokyo things have been going really well I'm really competitive with my international group but trials is like you know the stopping point for a lot of people because it just may not be your day that day and um you know it may not be your long jump runway and the trials thing was crazy because like Because we're the first event, I don't know if you saw. There was, I'm like, I felt like I went back to the coaches area. I'm like, it's like a war zone back here, guys. I was like, we got people crying, we got people. There's meltdowns. One of the girls, I felt like Mel Gibson and uh, and Braveheart at one point because one of the girls, we didn't know if we could clap for other people, if we could watch the other events. You know, I had some young kids in my flight, and they were like, "Can we clap?" And I was like, "This is our track meet. Of course you can clap." I was like, "We got to take the power back." so the, but the approach to Tokyo in general, I mean, it was the same as far as like business is concerned, like the, the macro cycles, everything, like the training was pretty much like still very regimented, but I have become a better athlete by embracing the other things that I do, by doing the podcast, by working. Um, you do miss a lot, actually, like just doing just sports for a long time. And I'm lucky right now, I'm working with my friend, Paul Shirley, who was in my podcast. Um he's doing a startup right now and he's former NBA. So he's at least very patient with me because there are things I'm realizing as a woman in my thirties now that like I'm completely stunted in as far as adulthood and like working life and business life. And it's been, it's hopefully like a good setup for when sport retirement comes, but, um, you know, I've just, I've been more open to, to more things. And I think that that has actually made me more focused when I get on the track and it's really it's it's presented itself in my performances and it's just made me better
0: it's made you more complete as a person it's probably made you happier it's not like you're taking all of your workouts home because you don't have a choice you have to focus on something else what is the startup what are you guys doing
1: so um it's called the process and so it's kind of like it's applying a lot of sports culture into work culture so, he originally had something called a writer's block. He's a published author. He's helping me write a book, which is very nice of him because, man, talk about structure. Um, and basically, it's, like, taking the principles of, like, a sport practice and using that deep focus, like, an hour of deep focus to just, like, really focus on your work, no distractions, and then force yourself to take a break, force yourself to walk away from the track, so... We help like freelancers, writers, creatives, basically just have like really, really deep focused periods of time where they can do work and then we'll do debriefs, we have discussions, we do a lot of roundtable type stuff and um, it's really fun, it's growing, he, he's in Denver now so like we're looking at actual spaces to have people come and work and then we also have an online component and it's, it's fun and exciting to also be working towards something again that's unrelated to sports but that's like still new and exciting and also it's very very helpful to have another athlete that like when I come home from the track and I'm like listen Paul I'm gonna need at least an hour for my brain to come back to my body (laughs) because it's hot outside and I'm still at that track and he totally gets it so it's fun it's just it's fun to just continue developing crafts outside of the sport world and I think that it just it makes us just like you said it makes us more whole and complete people.
0: So we do have to talk about the sport part. And, and we have yeah. to start with pole vaulting, I would imagine, because that is where you started post amputation. And how did that work? Okay. How, did, how, how did you get into pole vault, really? I mean, obviously we know your father uh, was a pole vaulter, so that's probably an indication.
1: This is a great story. It's not the most appropriate story, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so my parents used to have like Labor Day parties every summer before school started and I was like going into my senior year and it was like a very like just like the universe was conspiring a lot of things this was the first year I started working amp camp and like that was the first time I ever saw running legs and that like for on normal people not just like I thought you just had to know that you were an athlete to get a running leg I didn't know just like an average person could get one but we were having like you could get party. running
0: shoes kind yeah of. yeah
1: yes. <laughs> yeah um so we were having this labor day party and coming to my senior year of college, I was very active with my beer pong game. <laughs> so I was teaching my dad, who is 75 this year. Like he is no spring chicken. I was teaching him beer pong at this Labor Day party. And so his partner ended up being like my first pole vault coach. It was his athlete who was a pole vaulter. And I don't know who my partner was, but either way, we slept. And uh, so, like, the conversation, so like, I'm bad at beer. I'm bad at hand-eye coordination. Like, thank God I do drag because I can't. Hand-eye coordination's not for everybody. He's smoking me. And so we just start talking, like, mad trash to each other. and, so you and your how- father. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's not the kind of, like, loving and supportive, like, always encouraging. He is, like, his encouragement is, like, just really telling you how bad you are <laughs> at something. He's kind of, that's his style. He's competitive. Yeah, he's competitive like, and like I'm the exact so he and I are like carbon copies of each other. We're just super ultra competitive. So the conversation was who is a better athlete? And of course I was really landed on landed on thick. I was like, I'm a division one athlete, I'm an above-the-knee amputee, my tumbling skills, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Lacey, you couldn't learn to pull ball two feet. He was like, He's like, You're not fast enough, you're not strong enough. And uh, there's something else, and he's like, he's like, there's just no way you could do it. You can't get upside. Like not back.
0: coordinated enough or something. Yeah.
1: like I, I had a gymnastics background, so and of course, like me at 21, I was like, you can't tell me what I can do. So again, only like his his beer pong partner had was a pole ball coach at a at a high school nearby. So he was like, come through tomorrow, we'll see if you can. So the next day, I didn't have a running leg. I just had my normal leg, and I still jumped six feet because. With gymnastics, I can get inverted. Like it was just something really easy that I can do.
0: So let's 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 recap where we are. So it's Labor Day Party. You and your dad are playing beer pong. There's serious smack talking going on. He says you can't, you can't pole vault. So then you're at the pole vault now.
1: Yeah. So then I jumped. I mean, he told me I couldn't pole vault two feet. I jumped six feet. And I just I loved the feeling. I knew the cheerleading was wrapping up. It felt like flying. And I just wanted to compete. So I got a running leg so I could pole vault and um, I kept Googling like amputee pole vault or couldn't find anything, kept finding stuff with Paralympics, didn't know what Paralympics was. I was like, sounds special. Don't want to do it. And um, (laughs) just like dumped for fun. And we actually have a family friend who is a congenital arm amputee. And like, he was coaching a little bit, Tom Southall, he was coaching a little bit with para and he'd wanted me to get into para forever. My dad was the same way. He's like, no special stuff. And finally, like, my dad's like, you know what, you might want to run in a couple races just to get your pole vault jumps higher because you're going to need to get faster in order to get more height. And so I jumped, I jumped into this, uh, this high school meet that Tom just like gave me a lane for, and it was IPC certified. And my first race ever, I, um, I qualified for the London games. And so I was like, I really thought I was like, Ooh, this is it. Like I'm the best athlete. And, um. I knew that it was just a 100 long jump for me. And I did not want a long jump because I didn't want to get dirty. So I was like, I was like, I'll race and I'll make pole vault a sport all by myself. And like, I was just so cute and naive and just, again, very, very confident. And I go into my second hundred meter race ever. And it was nationals 2011. And I get totally screamed. (laughs) Like I just get completely smoked. And it was good because I'm so competitive. I'm like, this is not how this ends for me. So Training got more serious. After a couple years, I started long jumping. The gymnastics thing really just translated well. You know, I'm not pole vaulting because it's not an event. And so we got time to make it an event later, but not right now. I got got teams to make. And um, it just took off. And it was good because, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a fast runner, but I'm not like the fastest sprinter, but I'm a great jumper. So it just, it really, it all like worked out well. And I've just fallen in love with with being a technician on the runway with like really knowing the long jump, really knowing long jump as a sport, as an event and knowing all the parts that go into it. It's just, it's been, it's been a joy really.
0: Can you describe to us what, you, what goes into your long jump? How do, you, how do you do it? Like take us from, from beginning to end on a long jump.
1: Um, so mostly the long jump, it's ironic cause I'm like, I'm not a fast sprinter but like 95% of the jump is the run basically like what I tell myself is I have right now I have an an 11 stride approach so that's 11 right so I jump off my right foot I push really hard for five try to have a good drive phase I have two steps that are transitions then I have an athlete mark right there and it's a marker that I can see so basically there I just I turn it on my dad watches a lot of western so we've been saying like drive to the mark and then he said KBD Katie bar the door which I guess is some type of western thing I have to watch it but it was good enough. I was like, KBD. okay, Katie barred the door. And um, you set up a good jump. So your penultimate is your second step out. And you have to get into like a good, like posture position. You set up your jump. It's really and what's a-, a
0: good posture position. I mean, this is kind of like dropping your hips sort of thing to put yourself in a position. Yeah, to- you
1: drop Your hips, your trunk is tall, sometimes even back just so you can get kind of a good projection angle. And when you take off, like, it's about getting as much height as you can, because, like, you're carrying velocity with you. The, the main idea for me, because I'm not a speed jumper, I'm more of a power jumper, is just really building up speed and carrying that velocity. So when you take off, it just launches you. And so I've been lucky that I'm strong, I get good height, I have decent body awareness. So, like, when I'm in the air, I kind of, I know what to do, like, with my arms. Don't you feel that apex of the jump, you know, that's where you you come through, you ride your magic carpet, and then you swing your arms forward to try to just buy a couple more centimeters and hope that you didn't fall.
0: <laughs> and you, <laughs> you jump fall. off of your prosthetic leg, right? Which yeah. is, and so you're an above the knee amputee as well. Yeah. So your right leg is your prosthetic leg. Why, yeah. why do you jump off of your prosthetic leg?
1: So when I first started jumping, I was jumping off my sound side leg because um, that was like the leg that I did all my gymnastics skills in you get way better vertical compression and your sound side leg it weighs more so you have a way stronger drive knee using that sound side leg when you're driving your knee up i spent so many years of my life to avoid physics just to learn it like in real life application so like your drive knee it's, it's that equal and opposite forces concept in physics so basically like as you're pushing down on your prosthetic your drive knees driving up so you're really putting more force down as you're trying to build like your body up into the sky for jumping um And yeah, you just, I mean, you get way better vertical compression, less risk of injury, which is great. (laughs) And I mean, you know, if you injure, you just get a new foot and you just get like, you just get way, way better vertical with having your sound side drive knee come up.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I've never heard that. The, the idea of your sound leg giving you more drive and more, more height as a result of the, of that. And then, so, so we've gotten to the jump part of it, but then you have to land as well yeah and you've you've planned your landing yeah too it looks like right
1: you so you don't like try to not look although i feel like recently i've been cutting off jumps so you're basically you're driving up in the air And once you feel that apex what i like to do is try to get my hips through so it's all about still moving your center mass so it's that concept of velocity so you're driving up as you feel the apex you drop the knee push your hips through to really try to like buy you just want to buy as much space as you can up there and as you get your hips through, I try to get my legs in front, arms are in front. That's where my coach says ride the magic carpet. And when you know you're coming down, you sweep your arms, you just sweep them behind you and not touch the sand because I've done that too. I've made all these, I've made all the mistakes. <laughs> you got to sweep those arms through so you can buy even a few more centimeters. It's really about taking that center mass, like all of your mass that you built when you're building the velocity and just getting as much as you can in front once you're coming down off that jump. And um it's fun. I mean, like we were, we were at the track doing jump stuff today, you know, just chipping away back in the lab, figuring it out.
0: You look like you also have a plan of where your legs are going to go when you land. Is that, is that true?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I try to get in a good pike position, but when you know you're landing, like your heels inevitably drop. Like your heels are typically the first things that touch the sand. And when you know, like when you can tell that you're getting close, like that's when you try to scoop your legs in and try to like scoot your booty <laughs> as close to your heels as possible. Um, it's all about really knowing where you are in space. So when you feel those heels drop, you know that like your feet are gonna come first and you really still wanna try to get all your mass as far in front of you as much as you can and just, and just pray that it's the number that you needed <laughs> that meet.
0: Well, that's, that is the hard part because you have, you have what, you have six jumps, right?
1: Yeah.
0: So six jumps and it is, it seems like it is super easy to get a foul on the first jump to, to go over the board. So it doesn't matter how far you jumped it. uh, And, and as you said, when you're, when you're sweeping your hands back, that if you touch, they measure to the, to the point that is closest to the board.
1: Yeah.
0: And so you could have had a great jump but but you inadvertently touched the sand and made a mark and so that's what they're going to measure to. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Is it is it hard that way or is that kind of I mean you said you like the technical part of it. Do you do you enjoy that part of of jumping of like okay, got to put all the pieces together, the pressure's coming this is it. I mean, because it, it people can totally crumble in that yeah. situation too.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I do. I love it. The thing about long jump is like you want to run hard and you want to run fast, but you want to be able to recreate the same run every time. And I think like for people that are pure, pure speed, it is really hard to be consistent on the board. But I know like if I like the way that my long jump approach is set up, like a lot of it is just force against the ground and it's less speed and turnover. It's like, maybe half and half at this point, which it's easier to track and it's easier to track like where the issues are. I know like when, you, when it's competition time, the hardest thing to do is to think about what you're doing because that's going to make your run slower. That's going to make, it's going to choke your jump down because you're constantly trying to go over and fix and see what needs to be done. That, all that stuff needs to be done in practice. And by the time you show up at competition, it's just go time. Just go as hard as you can and just trust that the training has shaped you into what you need to do.
0: Which is, which is easier said than done, right? I mean, that was always the objective. And that's when, that's when everything works, right? When you just kind of, it seems easy. You did what you were supposed to do. You didn't think about it and you ended up with a great jump and you go, oh, great. I should just do that all the time. But it's, it's challenging to get to that place all of the time. Do you have any kind of triggers that help you to get to that place to to get out of your head to stop thinking
1: um i try to make like the approach work as simple as possible like when you're like i mean because even like when you over complicate things even in practice like, it's frustrating so i tried to just be like push hard for five <laughs> drive your knee like i try i'll pick two main things to focus on to really set up a good jump because i also don't think my brain can process more than two things maximum at the time
0: and you're um, not alone
1: yeah and I mean it's just like more than anything like what my biggest thing is is like just be as aggressive as you can out there and also just again it's like do you have to trust your training like once you trust your training and you can relax like you can really execute a lot of things and and it's just it's it's that's the hardest part is just relaxing you know relaxing and just trusting the training and just going as hard as you can while relaxing and it's um you like when you have environments like team trials stuff like that where like you know maybe the track isn't great but like this is the team selection and then you know we got people just having meltdowns left and right it's it's hard it's hard to block it out but you know you just focus on what you've been focusing on and just hope for the best
0: how much is is competing how much is long jump how much is the 100 meters how much is that like being a cheerleader because you were a division one cheerleader and not only I mean not just a cheerleader but you competed and you and you judged competition how much of that do you take into into your sport
1: it cheerleading really helped me a lot especially in long jump um the nice thing about like cheer and long jump is like a lot of it is like posing so like hitting angles was very easy for me I can get my body into positions or it's like oh I just need to do this um, the timing is a lot harder I definitely needed to work on intensity but I would say long jump and cheerleading are a little bit more similar into the fact that like it's it is an accumulation like the performance is an accumulation of things and like you have to put those together but sprinting I, I'm still trying to figure that out to me, sprinting is just like sheer power force aggression and like I sprinters and jumpers are very different people as well like sprinters are very intense. They're kind of divas. There was, I was going over film on our hundred and it's so funny. Some of the newer girls too, they're like, we, I didn't know that like that those girls were going to take so long to get in the blocks. And I was like, oh yeah, sprinters, they take like 10 minutes to get in the blocks. (laughs) And there's like a point too, where you even see me like look over and wait for them to get set because I have a standing start right now. And I'm like, I'm not going to hold my arms up while you guys are doing all your razzmatazz before you get in the blocks. So the, the mentality is different. I think jumpers are more laid back and like, it's just fun. Like it's, I have a really fun time when I'm jumping and I've had a lot of fun when I was cheerleading. So those are probably like the two things that I think correlate well with each other.
0: How about the, cause I mean, you talked about the, you know, the body image side of things, right? The body image of, of losing your leg, but then cheerleading in, in so many ways is, you know, I mean, it, it's the prototypical beautiful, right? I mean, this yeah. is this is the way that we've seen it in the movies throughout our whole lives. It's it's how how did you how how did that work? You know, the body image side of going into cheerleading, and then are you taking some of that into into the competition side as well?
1: Um. Oh yeah, I like I feel like this could be a podcast and a whole nother hour. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I just posted something that had like my, I called it my Barbie leg in college. Cause I used to have like a, a cosmetic cover and my process, he just completed works of art. They were so beautiful. And like they, it really was. I mean like cheerleading was all about image. And that was something that when I first started track, like I would do all the makeup, I'd do the hair. Sometimes I'd put a big cheer bow just cause like I still thought it looked cute. And my dad, when he was still working with me the first time he was like, listen, Lacey. <laughs> no one cares how you look if you're losing. And so that was a good pep talk that I needed to have because I really became, and I was young, like I really, I was wrapped up in like, how do I look? Cause you know, there's gonna be pictures, this, that. And I needed to spend time and get to know the craft, get to know the sport. And so now um, there's so much body issues in general and like track athletes, like are just these epitomes, like Adonis's and I don't know. I feel like I still very much have like a gymnast body type, but, um, at this point this year, especially, I was like, I do not care whatever it takes to get me to jump a little further. (laughs) Like that is literally it. And so there's a time and a place for it, but I just know like right now, like on the bigger stages, of course you get ready. And that's a big thing for a lot of like women and like girls in track and field. And I think that like, there's something about it, but I always like to just I don't know, I, I like to wear something that I know I'm comfortable in and that I know, um, I don't know, that it's just, it's not gonna be distracting because all I wanna do is jump further. I don't wanna be distracted by anything else. I just wanna get from here to there a little further.
0: And so the bow in your hair is not gonna help you do that. I'm Yeah,
1: just, the bow is yeah, of- retired, you know? And that was, that's a different Lacey. She's retired now. <laughs>
0: Uh well that is awesome. Well I hope that all of this work that you're doing now will will allow you to, you know, I hope you'll be allowed to put it out there on the track in Tokyo. I mean fingers yeah. are most assuredly crossed. I'm sure that you're probably trying not to think about it, I would imagine.
1: I think about it all the time. I'm channeling my inner Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. I'm like, so you're telling me there's a chance like every day. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, you know, it just, it is what it is. Um, I've just been lucky. I think that if I had done poorly at trials, but I just, it wasn't, it was so out of my control that it's not really, I don't really feel one way about it or another. I mean, don't get me wrong. Every time my phone rings, my heart flutters. (laughs) I got a text from somebody that I know was on like the athlete selection committee today and my heart dropped. It was something unrelated. (laughs) And I'm just, you know, I'm waiting. But if it doesn't happen again, it's like, I know that I have so many other things going on that I will welcome the break. Um, it's ironic because I made the national team this year, so I'm like contractually obligated to jump again for like a year. So
0: well, that is that is interesting. It's interesting how these things work and sort of the conflict that you have to that you have to endure. But you know, after after talking to you, I don't think that conflict isn't isn't something that you're going to shy away from. So, and you're certainly going to come out better on the other side, and and obviously help help the rest of us in dealing with our conflict as well. So we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Of course, thank you. My dogs say thank you too.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you to all of you who who have listened. If you didn't get a chance to listen to all of our talk with Lacey, you can go to the One Revolution page. This talk in its entirety will be archived there. We also will edit this talk. and and produce a podcast that'll be on YouTube, it'll be on Apple, it'll be on Spotify. Again, as always, the greatest gift, the greatest compliment that you can pay us is telling your friends. If you like us, if you follow us, that helps us immensely. And hopefully, hopefully we'll continue to get great guests and great stories and we will entertain you. So thank you all so much. And thank you, Lacey. And good luck. Fingers crossed.